Uh, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Delighted to be with you. And as we try to understand more richly and deeply the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, I remember way back when I was uh, still in college and first realizing that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. It wasn't just some kind of promise of immortality or uh, some sort of disembodied entity that we now uh, gave us some sort of assurance of an afterlife, but that, in fact, the argument could be made that the resurrection of Jesus is profoundly rooted in history. It's more than history, but it can be investigated with the toughest historical tools available. That was exciting to me. As I've gotten older, though, I have to say, more and more, I want to know what the resurrection of Jesus has to do with the resurrection of me, and what it has to do with the resurrection of the church, you might say, or the transformation of the entire cosmos. To help us understand some of these questions, we've got Dr. Scott Hahn. He is a author, most recently, of Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. You know him very well. He's got 40 other books. He's now the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he's been since 1990. He's also founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read the scriptures in the heart of the church. Scott, Great to have you back here. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to hear your voice, Al, and a blessed Easter to you and all of our listeners. Well, thank you. Uh, the body is a funny thing, and you spend a lot of time leading off in the book, talking about the body. It's not something we should just write off in favor of our soul. So tell us about uh, how do we should look at the body. Well, I think most of us share with our culture a kind of love-hate relationship with our bodies and the flesh thereof, because, you know, at, at times we pay too much attention to it, and other times we just feel such a contempt for it because it weighs us down, it makes us feel exhausted, vulnerable, and our own mortality weighs in upon us. Right. And so, you know, we share with the West this deep, deep abhorrence of suffering and dying. And yet as Catholic Christians, we also recognize that Christ didn't just assume a body as a disposable wrapper, some kind of carton that he would fill and then just throw away. Uh, his body became the instrument of our own redemption. And that is communicated not just to our souls in a kind of from matter to spirit, but it's communicated to our bodies in baptism and all of the sacraments and especially the Eucharist. And as you were pointing out at the top of the hour, you know, we're here celebrating the great feast of Easter. And that is, of course, the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus' own body. It's the fulfillment not only of his own prophecies, but of all of the other prophets that we find in the Old Testament. It's also much, much more than the resuscitation of his body, mm-hmm. like Lazarus's body was resuscitated. It really is a kind of transfiguration. It's a deification of our humanity. And his humanity is catching up to his own divinity, and in the process, drawing us into it as well. And that's what we celebrate. The resurrection of Jesus, then, um, is something which he shares with us. I mean, we're united to him in faith and baptism. And so, in some sense, we share his resurrection, right? Indeed. I mean, when you look at the exchange that took place in assuming our humanity 
to impart to us his divinity. You realize that the second person of the Holy Trinity didn't gain anything in that exchange because he wasn't lacking anything. For right. all eternity, he's God, and so he's not becoming man, suffering, dying, and rising to get more glory for himself. So why go to all of the trouble? Well, if he's not doing it for himself, it's obvious he's doing it for us. And if he's doing it for us, then we've got to really contemplate what he is doing and why, because he endows our physical life, our everyday experience, with an extraordinary grace that is actually magnified through the ordinary tasks of, you know, preparing a meal or spending time with the family and recognizing that um, this is what our faith is for. Because no matter what we go through, we know <laughs> Christ reigns. And I like that old line that we don't know what the future holds, but we certainly know who holds the future. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the risen Lord. Take me back to the, uh, under the old covenant, and there, what was the significance of the body? If you were doing a, a biblical theology of the body under the Old Covenant, what, what, would we, what would we learn? Well, I think the key phrase is progressive revelation, mm-hmm. because it isn't all manifested at once. It would have been just too much for ancient Israelites to take in. But I do think that the gift of faith gave to them something that exceeds what we usually assume. When we look at the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and then we look at the next one, Joshua. It's, not, it, it's somewhat surprising that the first six books are sort of preoccupied with death, so that Genesis ends with Jacob, now renamed Israel, making his sons pledge in a solemn way the transfer of his body from Egypt to the Promised Land. And likewise, Joseph. In fact, closer scrutiny, you're going to see that three out of the first six books of the Old Testament all end with very precise, detailed requirements or uh, a calling for what you're going to do with the body of Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. (laughs) And it's not because God can't resurrect the body just because it was buried in Egypt. Of course he can. (laughs) But they want to manifest their faith to future generations because they recognize that the Promised Land is a kind of terrestrial sign that points beyond itself to an inheritance that is literally out of this world. And so the Promised Land, what we call Canaan, serves throughout the Old Testament as a kind of geographical sacrament that points us to the new heavens, but also the new earth. Not just our souls being glorified, but our bodies kind of catching up, too. I think of the image of the slinky when I was a kid, you know, going down the (laughs) stairs, you know, our bodies will eventually catch up, and there's a certain sense in which our bodies are going to overtake our souls, because what we have now in grace within our hearts will be surpassed by what our bodies get in the resurrection. And I think it's important for us to also be honest with, our, with others, with ourselves, too, and that is we tend to think that the resurrected body is going to be a kind of ethereal substance, a spiritual body, that it won't really consist of flesh. But when you go back to the first century, the oldest form of the Apostles' Creed doesn't have the resurrection of the soma, the Greek word for body. It's the resurrection of the sarks, the Greek right. word for flesh. And Augustine indicates this, and the Catechism quotes him, that from the beginning, Christian faith in the resurrection of the flesh has met with incomprehension and opposition. On no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than on the resurrection of the body. The Catechism quotes that in 996. 
And I don't think we think much about the resurrection because we really try not to think about dying. That's the one thing we generally share in common with our own secularized culture, mm-hmm. and that is this aversion to suffering and death, and we don't really want to think about it. And yet, where Christianity is flourishing, memento mori, remember death, is always going to be front and center. Not because we have some morbid fascination with illness and death. No, we just recognize that Jesus transformed death from the loss of life to the gift of life, and he did so precisely at the fullness of time, which we celebrate in this Easter octave. And he doesn't just do it on Friday and then Sunday. You know, it's always helpful for me in looking back on my discovery of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist to recognize that Good Friday would be nothing more than a Roman execution apart from Holy Thursday that in instituting the Eucharist as the Passover, the New Covenant, he didn't just offer up his body, he transformed the bread into his body and gave that to us, to his disciples. And Mm. so the Eucharist can't be just a meal, or else Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is the Passover sacrifice of the New Covenant, that shows us that this was more than rhetoric, it was more than ritual, it was more than symbolism. It's precisely what set in emotion. Jesus' death to be different than everyone else's who lost their lives, but Jesus made it a gift of life. He made it a gift of love. He turned it into a prayer. He turned it into the liturgy of the New Covenant. And so if Holy Thursday is what transformed Good Friday from an execution to a sacrifice, then Easter Sunday is precisely what turned that sacrifice into the Blessed Sacrament, the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. Our High Priest is resurrected and ascended in Heaven, but by the power of the Spirit, He empowers earthly men, mortal men, to transform earthly matter into His body, so that this liturgy goes on, and not just for the sake of celebration, but so that our suffering and death can mean much more than simply the loss of life. This becomes our share in Christ's own sacrificial offering. And, I mean, that's a lot to take in. But the fact is, that's what Easter is for. That's what preparation through Lent is all about. And I must admit, working on this book for the last two years has been one of the greatest experiences of my life as a Catholic. Really? One of the things you point out in this book that I, I hadn't considered before, and that is when we eat, uh, you know, usually eat food, we assimilate that food into our bodies. But when we feed on the Eucharist, the body of Christ is assimilating us into itself. That is, right. I mean, that's really quite remarkable. So each Eucharist is a way of moving towards divinization. You know, we, we look at the fact that Jesus gave the Bread of Life Discourse a year before the Last Supper. And he said things that, as Catholics, we can really connect with. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. But I think even Catholics sort of pause when they hear Jesus say, He eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. But the whole point is that what we're receiving is not just the body of Christ as it was on Thursday in the upper room, or as it was on Friday, hanging from a cross, or Saturday, buried in the tomb. The body that we receive is the resurrection. It is the resurrected body of Jesus. Time and again, when you look at the resurrection appearances in all four Gospels, typically they coincide with Sunday, and ordinarily they also coincide with a meal, so that the early Church could recognize that in the Holy Eucharist, the body we receive is the resurrected body of Jesus, precisely for it to serve as what the medievals called the instrumental cause. When we receive his resurrected body, 
he assimilates our mortal bodies to himself, but he also sets into motion what will eventually fulfill those words, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. Because I have assimilated you to my own glorified body, my sacred humanity, which is now yours. My glory will be too. The perishable will indeed put on the imperishable, but we are already consuming that imperishable body every time we receive Holy Communion. Oh, what we take for granted. And when we come back to be able to share in Holy Communion, I do believe that there are going to be many graces that are released exponential multiplication of graces, especially as we kind of just prepare ourselves to recognize, my goodness, we have been doing this all of our lives. Have we really ever allowed gratitude to rise to the level of what God has given us? Yeah, very good. Scott, hold it there if you don't mind. We'll come back on the other side of the break. My guest, Dr. Scott Hahn, his newest book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the resurrection of the body. I'll tell you, it's. Uh, I just began reading it. It's a rich read. And it's every page you're going to come away with new insight and realizations. Be right back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Scott Hahn. We are talking about the resurrection of the body. His book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. Um, I guess, I mean, the way you're describing the resurrection certainly makes sense since the resurrection is central to the whole apostolic preaching. It's not just one more event uh, you know, in the story of salvation history. There's something central about the resurrection, and that's because it's tied, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's tied directly to the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, when you compare Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 at Pentecost to Paul's first full sermon at the synagogue at the city of Antioch in Acts 13, you're going to notice the same fivefold outline. But basically, it's this, that you have Jesus coming in the flesh, and he is performing his public ministry, and he is arrested, he's falsely accused, he's tried, and he's executed. And for Peter and Paul, that basically takes two and a half to three verses of their sermon in the summary you find in Acts 2 and Acts 13. And then suddenly, you're off to the races, because Peter spends the next dozen verses or more speaking about the resurrection in detail, looking Mm -hmm. at the prophecies that are fulfilled, looking at the mystery that is unveiled, looking at the spirit that is poured out, looking at the power that is now available, looking at how our lives are changed and will never be what they were before the resurrection. And Paul picks up right where Peter leaves off and sees this as the hinge in which salvation history turns, sees it as the portal into which we enter to really experience not just the doctrine which is true, but the reality that the doctrine conveys. You know, and I I think now back to what uh, Kimberly and I did over 25 years ago in writing Rome Sweet Home, and then uh, 20 years ago we came out with, I came out with the Lamb's Supper. And I really feel like there's a trajectory here from our conversion account in Rome Sweet Home to my own description of the Mass, my first experience of that in the Lamb's Supper. And now, in this book, 
hope to die. I want to trace this discovery of the real presence of the mystery of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, but his resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity. That is what we feast upon. We don't see it except through the eyes of faith, but what faith shows us, it's almost too good to be true unless it is true, and it is the gospel truth. But I mean, the Catholic gospel is one high-octane piece of good news, and this is what Peter and Paul were proclaiming, and this is what you put your finger on just a moment ago, Al. This is so much more than a historical event. It's so much more than the fulfillment of prophecy. There was an empty tomb. There was, in fact, a resurrected body. Mm-hmm. But that really becomes sort of the acorn of which, well, the new heavens and the new earth will be the oak tree. In Christ's resurrected body, we have the beginning of the new creation that we all now share in. And it it isn't just a lofty concept. It really is the thing that comes down to us as soon as we wake up in the morning, as soon as we make a morning offering, as we make the sign of the cross. We remind ourselves that we have entered into a reality that is bigger and better than the entire universe that God created back in the beginning. And again, this is not just religious rhetoric. If we could see through the eyes of our guardian angels, we would realize why the early Christians not only were no longer afraid of death, and they were unlike the Stoics who could keep a stiff upper lip in the face of suffering and death, Christians greeted death because this was the new Passover. This was the new and final exodus. And nobody has a natural inclination to suffer and die. But what our supernatural faith shows us is that when we give consent to suffering and death, what we really enter into is the visible glory of it all. And clearly Jesus was preoccupied with this. You know, he didn't make a kind of medical mistake when he spoke of Jairus' daughter as being asleep, and they all (laughs) jeered. He wasn't just kind of pulling his disciples' leg, oh, Lazarus is asleep. Well, he'll wake up then. No, he's dead. (laughs) Well, why didn't you say so in the first place, Lord? Because what you think death is, I see as sleep, and what you think freedom is, mortal sin, rejection of God, breaking of the covenant, that is a deeper and darker kind of death than the cessation of breath or brain waves ever could be. And this is why I think we recognize that, you know, in the beginning when God created man and he breathed into his Adam's nostrils the breath of life, it wasn't just air Adam was breathing. It was the breath of God's spirit. And when God said, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, he wasn't issuing an idle threat. When Adam and Eve sinned, they committed a mortal sin. They committed spiritual suicide. They snuffed out God's life in their soul And that death was not less of a death. It wasn't a metaphorical death. It was more of a death than if a bullet had entered their brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what we've got to do is reassess reality in the light of faith and recognize that this faith gives us life that is divine and eternal. But it's vulnerable. And especially in our world today, we're in the name of freedom. We put it at risk and jeopardize this life that is truly eternal and divine. And so... We have to rethink practically everything, starting from Easter Sunday on. And, you know, this is, uh, again, I I realize it's kind of, I'm a theologian, and so I can quickly go from zero to 60. But we have this available (laughs) on our website, the St. Paul Center. We have kind of become the quarantine Catholic hub because of all of the free material that we have made available, especially the Eucharist in Scripture, these talks that I've given on the Lamb's Supper, the fourth cup, and consuming the Word are now available 
as well as these other talks, Lord Have Mercy and First Comes Love and Understanding Our Father. And we put this material out for beginners, for intermediate, for advanced, for, you know, for non-Catholics, ex-Catholics, anti-Catholics, but also for Catholics who want to take it to the next level in all of that. And so we do want to invite people to that website, the yep. com, which is the Quarantine Catholic Hub, because what we have discovered from hundreds and hundreds of people in these last several weeks is that this has afforded people an opportunity to enter into the grace of conversion. But I tell you, we've never been so excited about the opportunities that have been presenting. And uh, I just... I feel like God does more with less. When it gets dark, the light just shines much, much brighter. Well, this is an opportunity really for all of us, as you uh, referred to earlier, to uh, reassess. Have we taken the Eucharist for granted? Uh, Have we uh, eaten and drinking unworthily? Uh, This is forcing, I think, uh, again, a deep examination of conscience. And I think it's also a chance for us to remember that uh, this, uh, Dave Urban, uh makes it clear that we can have fellowship with the Trinity through the reading of Scripture and entering into the life of Scripture. There is a, uh, an authentic presence of God there, and uh, so we can, uh, you know, not limit our understanding of fellowship with God uh, to simply uh, having to. Uh, attend uh, the liturgy. So I I think this is an opportunity for many things. One thing, though, I want that you keep coming back to, in which I want to beat the drum for a little bit, and that is this continuity between our life now, those of us, again, who are baptized, who are uh, in a state of grace, and who are receiving uh, the Eucharist, the continuity between our life now and our life to come we are already experiencing eternal life. Is that right? We really are. I mean, sanctifying grace indwelling our soul yeah. is nothing less than the Blessed Trinity mysteriously present. We don't get that on a set of scales, but, again, the reality is not less but greater than what we see and what we hear and what we touch and feel. You know, I, I start the book off by describing the first sermon I ever preached at a funeral. It was my grandmother's funeral, and I was newly ordained as a Presbyterian, and I preached on John 11 and Lazarus, I am the resurrection of life, and afterwards, my mom came up to me, and she was practicing her faith as a good evangelical at that point, but nevertheless, she said, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? I'm like, what stuff? (laughs) That that our bodies are going to be resurrected? And I'm like, well, yeah. And she's like, "Ah, I never thought about that, and I'm not sure... I'm looking forward to that, you know? <laughs> I said, well, it won't be our bodies the way they are now, capable of suffering and dying and all of that, but they're not going to be, you know, like body 2.0. You know, it really is going to be <laughs> our bodies. And so I look at that in this book and how our body is going to be resurrected, but it's going to be tr- transformed. It's going to be totally different, but it's going to be recognizably similar. So Jesus can pass through walls, but sometimes they don't recognize him. But then, of course, he also has the holes in his hands and yes, where his side was that's pierced. Right. And these are all, in a certain sense, sacred signs of the sacrifices of love 
and not only for his body, but for ours as well. So I, I go through the three conditions common to all resurrected bodies that we're going to be the same. Our bodies are going to be whole. They're going to basically have gender like we have them now. Yep. Yep. But these four additional attributes of impassibility, we're not going to be capable of suffering or dying, obviously. Subtlety, which makes it lucid. Agility, which makes us so powerfully mobile, but also clarity. That is, we're going to come to know each other and ourselves in Christ better than we ever knew ourselves or anyone else in this life. And I also point out that heaven is not just going to be like a staring contest where we all just kind of try to contemplate the divine essence, (laughs) as awesome as that is. It is going to be a reunion, a homecoming, where suddenly we share for millions of years our life stories until we can see that it really is one story scripted by a father who loves us more than we ever imagined and who gives us a joy that will make a trillion years pass by like a half a minute. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. <laughs> Staring contest. I hadn't heard that before. That is, yeah. that's, it's funny. I mean, because it's true. We talk about the beatific vision, and I can understand, especially people who are not familiar with the, the history of, uh, of this uh, discussion, in the back of their mind, they probably are thinking that very thing. So we go to heaven, and we look at God for, <laughs> for eternity. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this has cultural consequences. Um, this is a belief. I remember reading um, his, uh, what's his name now? Uh, and he wrote a, Darren McMahon. He's a Dartmouth professor who wrote a history of happiness. And he said that the, Christ, the Catholic Church uh, actually gave the world a different understanding of happiness. The vision of the Christian martyr who could experience happiness and joy of eternal life now in this world and that the suffering of this world was worth passing through. I want to come back on the other side and talk about the cultural consequences of this view of the body and this understanding of the resurrection. Dr. Scott Hahn, my guest. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Scott Hahn. We're talking about the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body. He's written Hope to Die. It's outstanding. And uh, before the break, Scott, I mentioned uh, this uh, Dartmouth professor who wrote a book called The History of Happiness. And he he mentioned that in um, the blood and sport uh, of uh, an African arena, sports arena, uh, was birthed this radical new vision of happiness. He's talking about the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity and their friends, and pointed out that the they because these martyrs found their identity in the crucified and risen Christ, and in the knowledge that they were united to him, that they were experiencing eternal life now, they were able to give the world uh, a vision of happiness that went beyond the pain and suffering of this world uh, through the pain and suffering of this world. And he says that's what amazed the pagan onlookers. Um, Here we have, for the Christian martyr, an understanding of their present and their future, which enabled them to show the world that 
the suffering of the Christian was not a contrary of happiness, but it was in fact a means to eternal uh, life, and eternal bliss. There are other, and we another consequence of the resurrection of the flesh seems to be our respect for the body, and for a while, I don't know for how long, I don't know the history on this, but Catholics were not supposed to uh, cremate their bodies. And now we hear about it all the time. Tell us a little bit about the cultural consequences of the resurrection and the respect of the body. Well, you've just identified two distinct strands, for better and for worse. You know, on the one hand, this uh, overcoming of the fear of suffering and death that you find in the second, third, and fourth centuries, especially in the martyr accounts. And I'm so happy that you mentioned that one episode in the uh, arena there in Carthage back in 2003, uh, Perpetua and Felicity. I mean, young wives, mothers, Felicity was pregnant when she was arrested. Perpetua was nursing her infant son. If anybody had a justifiable dread of suffering and death, and, and they weren't masochists, they were just deep, true believers. Yeah. And so they recognized that God's timing was such that they go into the arena, and they're described as having joyous and brilliant countenances, singing psalms, giving thanks. And of course, this had a awesome effect on their kids, but everyone else who witnessed it, you know, and this confirms what Athanasius says later in the third, fourth centuries, that before Christ came, even the holiest of men were afraid of death. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. Uh, All those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ. You know, there really is a sense in which, individually and culturally, uh, the human race through the Catholic Church matured. When you look at infants, they want instant gratification. There is no sense of deferred gratification. They don't understand their parents when they say, hey, no pain, no gain. The sign of maturing, growing up, is learning how to defer gratification. Mm -hmm. Not because you don't want gratified, you want to be gratified, it's because you know that if you wait, if you defer, you'll get much more. And so that eternal perspective broke into history and created such a, a, I mean, it really was more than a cultural transformation. It brought about what we now call a civilization of love. I mean, far from perfect, Christendom was never, you know, heaven on earth, but at the same time, it achieved things that the Romans never imagined. And, you know, I look at that and say, if God could do it before, you know, against all odds in a pre-Christian Roman culture, talk about a culture of death, I suspect he longs to do it again, perhaps Mm -hmm. even more than we want him to. But, you know, the flip side is the darkness that has descended, because, you know, we've lost that vision of the resurrected Lord and our own hope. And so as a result, we have backed ourselves into this disordered fear of suffering and death that we share with a secularized culture. And so, you know, you find that even among Catholic Christians, cremation, which was so abhorrent, it was so pagan, one of the things that completely transformed the the Roman culture was the Christian practice that was, you know, reverent funerary practices, um, seeing the bodies of our beloved dead as signs that point to the resurrection. 
And you can also trace how it was that cremation came about largely through the Freemasons and the Bolsheviks. I treat all of that in the book. Mm. And they realized, look, instead of just debating the issue as to how we ought to treat the dead, let's just transform the culture through a kind of de-evangelization. And that's what's happening in the 1800s and the 1900s through the treatment of the body and burning it. And, you know, cremation does not consist primarily of just burning it up because the bones won't burn. It really is a kind of pulverizing as well. When you look into it, it's, you know, it's really terrible. I mean, sort of like what we say about sausage, you like it until you find out how it's made. (laughs) You know, and the fact is, I mean, cremation is a kind of devangelization, because inadvertently, more is caught than is taught. And even if you don't change your creed, nevertheless, you're going to back yourself into an understanding of the body that is repaganized. And so, you know, I, I don't want to add one more battlefront to the culture wars here, in addition to contraception, abortion, same-sex right. marriage, we're going right. to add cremation. And so the whole argument is really one of fittingness, that if God has assumed our body in Christ and transformed it into the instrument of our redemption and the sign of our hope, what is the most fitting response? The Church now permits cremation, but it has never approved it, nor will it ever approve that. And, you know, nowadays cremation is viewed by many people as an economical way to do things, but I'm convinced that we need to rethink this. And again, not to make this the primary battle, but I do think that we can teach the next generation a lot of lessons that go beyond lectures precisely by how we treat our bodies and how we treat the bodies of our departed loved ones. Uh, I talk about my grandmother's funeral where I preached that sermon and encountered my own mom's unbelief. Later she asked if she could have her body cremated and my father too, and I kind of patiently worked with them as to the reasons why. And when my dad died, he had agreed reluctantly not to allow us to, you know, he, he, okay, I'm not going to be cremated. And my mother came back to me, and she said, I am so glad we didn't. Hmm. And then I said to her, we're not going to do with you, right? And she goes, no. I, I just think that sometimes we learn things just through obedience. Uh, we, we insist, I want to understand why. Give me an argument. Well, obedience actually leads us to deeper understanding than whatever arguments I might be able to come up with. And when we receive the gospel, when we appropriate the tradition, the living tradition of the Catholic faith, it ends up transforming us from within. And I do believe that we are going to see the hope of the resurrection enkindled within people, precisely not just by the books we write, but also by the way we bury our loved ones. And uh, this is just something that I think taps into our tradition in a way that makes it truly come alive for us. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 has a phrase which, in which he refers to death as the final enemy. C- contextualize that for us. In, in what way is death the final enemy? Is he talking about the final enemy for the, every person who has to undergo death? the particular uh, judgment, or is he talking about a more apocalyptic uh, view of death uh, at the end of time? Well, I mean, both things are true. I, I think if you go back to the beginning and you recognize that Adam got life that was natural, physical, and bodily, he breathed oxygen, but he also got life that was spiritual and divine and eternal, God's own breath. And so when he committed original sin, that was mortal sin. And when God said, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, he wasn't issuing an idle threat. 
Adam died spiritually. He lost divine life. And then physical death becomes kind of a visible anti-sacrament of the internal condition that he entered by giving consent to mortal sin, something that we can recapitulate whenever we misuse our freedom and Mm -hmm. say yes to mortal sin. And so the ultimate victory for us is going to basically be overcoming the ultimate enemy. And that is not just physical death. If we end up dying in a state of grace, then the devil who inflicted the power of spiritual death is going to be defeated in an everlasting way, not just by Christ 2,000 years ago, but by everyone who dies in a state of grace. That victory of life, divine life, is going to bring about, in a certain sense, the reversal of everything that Adam brought down upon his family. Christ, the new Adam, Mary, the new Eve, will bring down upon the human race not an anti-sacrament of physical death, but this super-sacrament, whereby we don't just get Christ's resurrected body in the Holy Eucharist as the Blessed Sacrament. We get our own deified bodies back again, which will be the result of our receiving the Holy Eucharist in a state of grace, even though we're weak and we're distracted and we still have a lot of fears to fight. If we fight those fears to the end and allow Jesus not just to heal me of some illness, but to heal me of the fear of illness not just to deliver me from death, but to deliver me from the inordinate fear of death, whereby I can do what I saw my mom do. When she died, she didn't lose her life. As weak as she was, she experienced a joy like I'd never seen her in 87 years because she knew it was her turn to give her life back to Christ as he had given his life to her. That's who we are in Christ. That's what happens when we live, when we suffer, and we die and rise again. And it doesn't require a Ph.D. Just go through the creed, mean what you say, and then reflect upon it. And at the end, you're going to say, the good news is just out of this world. Let me ask you, you referred earlier to our uh, our resurrected bodies and uh, expressed certain features that uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas. Just elaborate a little bit on that. What are these body, resurrected, glorified, resurrected bodies going to be like? Well, on the one hand, we're going to share with those who are condemned resurrected bodies. And so there are three conditions that we share in common with those who do not enter heaven. You know, and that is the idea of quality, that is identity. You know, if you're a man, then you will be a man forever. And likewise, identity, that is your body and that there is an integrity to it, but there are these four additional properties that are almost impossible for us to imagine. I mean, the first one is easy. That is impassibility. At long last, we don't have to suffer or die. We're not going to worry about exhaustion. We're not going to worry about illness and all of that. But even more is this idea of subtlety, lightness, that uh, it won't enable us to walk through walls so much as we're going to be able to move in love, through communication, not just our thoughts and our feelings, but we're going to be able to give ourselves to God and to give ourselves to our loved ones. And then this is going to create a third property that Thomas Aquinas describes as agility. That is, it's raised in power, this power that is going to enable us to kind of, well, you know, if I think of Jerusalem, in a resurrected body, I am there. My soul is not weighed down by my body. My body mm-hmm. is propelled by my soul. Yeah. And then lastly, there is this clarity where all of truth is love, and all of love is power. And it isn't just truthful and meaningful. It is powerful. 
we're going to recognize that what is supreme in God is not his capacity to dominate creatures. What is supreme in God is supreme from all eternity apart from creatures. And that is a love that is life-giving. And we're going to enter into that in our own human way and realize that this is what people were trying to find. This is what they were getting drunk for or high. You know, and this is, this, this is what we were made for, and we're going right. to have it for all eternity. Scott, once again, thank you so much uh, for your time with me today, but also for all the work you do teaching. St. Paul Center, how do people get in touch with you? Yeah, they go to stpaulcenter.com. They can order the book. They can already get the, uh, the, the book online right now. Scott, thanks so much. Great being with you.